welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, where I, John Cribbs, am joined by my co-host, Mr. Christopher Funderburg. Hi, John. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, sir. We have a very special guest, a recurring guest, uh, who has previously suggested a book for us all to read, and we had a great time uh, learning about uh, Vernon Dixon from this gentleman, and he has returned with another suggestion. Uh, he is writer, filmmaker, curator, Stephen Scheel. How are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, you're welcome. It's uh, it's always fun. It's always fascinating to hear from you, and uh, uh, especially considering your very busy schedule recently. Um, all things considered, you've got a new short film, Unmade, which is a completed film. I should mention the title is Unmade, um, but it's sweeping the festivals and winning awards all over the place uh, despite COVID. <clears throat> and you have a new one as well. Uh, I, I do not uh, want to smoke. Sure. I mean, uh, it's funny with Unmade because one of the, uh, apart from being thematically, you know, you know, tying into the story, the, the title Unmade, I, I called it Unmade because I hadn't made something for a while. And I wanted to have, the file on my desktop saying unmade so that I would oh. look at the day and just think, oh, God, you haven't made that yet. <laughs> it was psychological uh, reasoning behind it as well. <laughs> yeah. Motivational. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I do not want to smoke was, uh, is, a, is a very kind of odd short film. Were you trying to convince yourself not to smoke anymore with that one? No. Was that the <laughs> No, what it is was um, I got contacted by somebody, uh, uh, a woman called Dr. Anna Toropova, at the University of Nottingham, who had this script uh, from uh, for a Russian, a Soviet short film from the early 30s, which was a health education film about using hypnotism to stop smoking. And it was never made, but she had the script for it. And she asked me whether we could make it, kind of in the way that it would have been made in the 1930s. Um, and, and so we did. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, on like three of the hottest days last year, we were stuck in this room trying to recreate kind of Soviet era uh, hypnosis. It's interesting. My parents wow. stopped smoking through hypnosis when I was born. They had a, a doctor do hypnosis to get them to stop smoking. So it was a fascinating. When I heard about that, I thought, oh, like my mom and dad. And then I, you know, slightly yeah. different thing. <laughs> I'll send you the link. I'll send you guys the link. It's uh, it's an interesting film, but it's 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 yeah. It was it was great fun to do. But yeah, both of those uh, films are out doing the circuit at the moment. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Unmade is fantastic. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to see the new one. Um, Chris, was it successful for your parents? I just wanted to ask. Yeah, they never smoked again. They did oh, the hypnotism what? and stopped smoking. That was it. <sighs> Uh, so, so the two films were shot uh, pre-pandemic, I'm guessing, but uh, you've had a lot of stories published recently as well. Have you found uh, more drive to work and to get, uh, have you got your creative juices kind of gotten going while you've been in lockdown over there? Actually, yeah, I've, I've written probably more during lockdown, during the six months of lockdown and, you know, much more than the previous six months. And, and I guess part of that's just, you know, there's not been a lot of hell of a lot of other work on. Um, on a scale of one to 10 Jack Torrances, where are you at as far as writing in lockdown? I, in the early days, I, I think there was, there was a real kind of, uh, you know, because the, the stories I'm writing are horror stories, generally. Yeah. You know, horror or kind of, you know, dark at the very least. And I think in the early days of lockdown, there was a real kind of like sense of, oh shit, where is this going? So they were, you know, they were getting quite kind of, full on but you know then once we kind of relaxed into whatever this 
new normal is. Um, uh, I, I just found that, that there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ideas there. And I think with, you know, part of writing horror is about thinking, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, and when you're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, there's all this other stuff going on, that, that's quite an easy place to get to mentally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? Oh, it's happening over there. So, so Jack Torrance becomes kind of the target mindset at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's interesting it's funny that you say that though with the what's the worst that can happen because i'm like a germaphobe right and one thing that i was reading about is that um during a pandemic like this people who are like germaphobes don't feel worse they feel better in some way and i was like oh that's interesting i do find that to be true because if you're like me you walk around and you're like this isn't bad you know you know you can get uh meningitis from a doorknob any day of your life man like it's out there no matter what so it's a sort of weird thing to have uh, uh your worst fears confirmed in this context too it's sort of like sure. I, I guess it's just the world has now become you know as you see it it's like yeah there yeah. are everywhere. Yeah, you should be more careful. Yeah. yeah, you should be washing your hands, of course. Yeah, don't breathe on me, guy in the subway. You shouldn't have been doing that to begin with. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the book, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Stephen, is, of course, you um, uh, run the uh, Mayhem Film Festival every year, which would uh, happen in October. What's it looking like this year? I mean, are you guys doing a remote thing, or is it going to move forward? What's the story with that? Well, what we've got at the moment, um, our host cinema, uh, Broadway Cinema in Nottingham uh, are opening in a couple of weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And they asked us to put together a, a programme of uh, physical screenings. Um, I know kind of, you know, over in the States, it's, <laughs> there's, there's less of a kind of uh, appetite maybe for, for doing physical screenings. Over, over here, cinemas have been open since uh, July. You know, they put in social distancing um things so um so we're looking at doing what we're calling the skeleton edition of the festival which is a very slimmed down version of physical screenings because obviously what we can't do is what you get at a festival which is you know do film after film after film after he stays in the cinema and you, you kind of get that rolling kind of sense of the of the festival and that's just not that's just not going to happen you know the, the cinema is going to be cleaning the, the the screen in between films and there'll be a break and, you know so what we what we've kind of said to our audience is that you know this year we're, we're putting something on over our usual dates and there will be films on and there's some great films we've got some brilliant films that we're showing um but that we hope to be back to normal as a festival next year smart okay. sounds like the right way to do it <laughs> I mean, I, it's, you know, I, I fully appreciate if people aren't in the situation or aren't in the mindset where they, where they feel they can come back to a cinema because, you know, I, I, I fully kind of understand that. On the other hand, you know, I look at our host cinema and think I want that cinema to, to be there in a year's time, you know, and, and for that to happen without the government support because that, that's all coming to an end now that, you know, it, it needs custom. It needs people to go in there and, and, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they're making it as safe as possible, then, you know, we're, we're happy to put films on there. And have they been doing virtual screenings? A lot of the, the theaters in New York city, I know here sort of have a virtual cinema open right now where their regular release schedule is being made uh, available. Have they been doing that or has it been purely shut down? No, they've been doing uh, in association with, uh, various distributors uh, they've been doing online online screenings um, so they have kind of kept kept that up but um, it's 
they've not been doing I, I I think they've just been in a situation where they you know they've had to furlough a lot of their staff so they, yeah. they, they haven't been at the level that they would have been if they you know in terms of uh, programming that they would have been otherwise so so it's you know it, it's been difficult times for for cinemas over here as i'm sure it is over there but especially kind of rep cinemas or kind of independent cinemas and, yeah yeah like i say the the government have you know haven't done uh, a massive amount to to kind of help out with that yeah, I don't think unless you're a major chain, they've done a lot to help out over here as well. I think Regal Cinema and AMC are probably not doing fine, but they cash their checks, certainly. I'm, I'm really not sure how much uh, funding has gone towards not-for-profits and arts organizations. If it's anything like the rest of the non-COVID times, it's probably close to zero, would be my guess. A negligible amount. Yeah, yeah. So the book this evening that you brought to us to talk about is, would you like to introduce it, Stephen? Yeah, it's a book called The Blank Wall by uh, Elizabeth Sensei Holding. And it's, I guess you'd kind of class it as uh, domestic suspense or domestic noir, if you want to kind of give it a, give it a label. Um, it's, uh, it was written in 1947. Uh, it's been made into a film a couple of times. Uh, Max Ophel's made it as The Reckless Moment, starring Joan Bennett, James Mason in 1949. Um, and then it was remade um, in 2001 by David Siegel and Scott McGeehy as The Deep End, starring uh, Tilda Swinton. I was um, halfway through the book when I was like, oh, The Deep End. I haven't thought about that movie <laughs> since 2001. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've watched, uh, as well as rereading the book, I've watched, rewatched both of those adaptations in the past week or so, and it's really interesting to do a kind of comparison between the three. Uh, actually, I had a, uh, uh, a similar but different experience, which I had heard it was based on The Deep End, or The Deep End was based on it, and it didn't click that it was the Tilda Swinton movie. I was like, this is nothing like the Jersey, uh, Jersey Skolomowski oh, yeah. movie movie. I was like, when does it get like that, you know? Yeah. So I was, I was thrown off the scent, certainly in the plot, for a, for a good chunk of it. Uh, so, so, have you, yeah, have you seen the Tilda Swinton one, Chris? Have you seen the... I'm sorry. Have you seen the Tilda Swinton version? Yes, I've seen the Tilda Swinton and the Ophuls. I've okay. seen I've seen both of them. I actually just rewatched the Ophuls, uh, which I had not watched in a very long time, and and enjoyed it. You know, I think that Ophuls American movies are are uh, a fraction of what his French movies are. So I get why people like them, but I also when I see them, it you know it bums me out. It's it's like watching somebody fight with one hand behind their back in a lot of ways is what I feel like. But I have the same feeling about like Fritz Lang's American movies where it's like, these are good, but like understand what he's famous for, you know, understand what makes him a legend. So I have that reaction to Reckless Moment too, which is, you know, which is a, a film I, I like, but I sort of lament the state Ophuls is in when I watch it more than anything else. So Stephen, tell us what you know about uh, this author, because you had brought her up previously on the last episode we had you on, uh, where you had picked the Virgin Huntress as your aperitif to go with the book that you had chosen then. Uh, so obviously you're a fan. What does biographically, what do you know about her? I mean, she's one of those authors who, who I kind of feel should be better known than she is because, yeah. um, you know, she, she was very well respected. Raymond Chandler loved her, thought she was, thought she was amazing. 
but biographically there's there's not a lot out there really she was born in 1889 she was um uh, came from quite a kind of i think upper middle class background married to a, a, a diplomat um wrote romantic novels during the 1920s and then after the stock market crash in 1929 turned to writing uh mysteries or crime novels because they were more lucrative um and then wrote i think something like 18 18 novels through from the 30s to the 50s um and that's about it in terms of you know she doesn't appear to have led you know a kind of uh, adventurous life as far as I can understand you know she, she seems to have been somebody who's who's a pretty solid kind of you know churning these these books out um but I think what's really interesting about her and one of the things that that really sort of turned me on to her from you know the first books that I read was that she she very much feels like a kind of precursor to someone like Patricia Highsmith in that she's very interested in the, in the psychological aspect of you know, of, of, of crime and very interested in, in character in a way that, you know, feels more modern than, I guess, maybe the times when the books were written, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, she does have this kind of, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the Black Wall is, is that, you know, I called it earlier a domestic noir and it does have this kind of noirish kind of feel for me that, that, that you know, this, this kind of slight kind of doominess about it and that, that, that I really love. Yeah. It's interesting yeah, because the first maybe 20 pages of this book, I would have sworn she was an English writer, uh, you know, and I guess she has a few ties to England. I think she married an English uh, gentleman uh, and they traveled together. Uh, but I would, but until they kind of, it becomes obvious that it's set in America. I thought like this was an English setting with English characters by an English writer. There's kind of a formalism to it that felt very English to me. It is interesting, too, that you call it domestic noir. And I guess before we get into it too deeply, we should do our paratif pairings with it. But it is it splits the difference between like a cozy mystery and a really hard-boiled book in a way that I found striking reading it this time. And even just, you know, it gets kind of, I can look at the edition I have here. Uh, that's sort of this uh, pastel pointillist cover of it. Uh, it gets positioned in some way as like cozy mystery in a way that it's not. Uh, and I do think it's fascinating just by coincidence that you bring up Patricia Highsmith. While I was reading this, I was rereading uh, Highsmith's Little Tales of Misogyny. And the next month we're doing a Highsmith uh, book for the, uh, uh, for the podcast. And it's a, it's a fascinating comparison to it. I do um, agree with you about her being more interested in the psychological aspects and also a precursor to that, the psychological crime novel that emerges in the early 50s and mid 50s. She definitely presages it. But it, I also find it very easy to connect to the James M. Cain uh, style of the time, you know? And sort of when I was reading this, what it, what it brought out to me was not so much oh, it's this different, totally unique thing, but those domestic melodrama elements are so crucial to noir to begin with that the essential noir story to me uh, is not about a cop or a career criminal. It's about an average person 
pulled into crime, you know? And I think that this book really, um, by being, uh, so far along on one part of the spectrum towards domesticity that it's very much about uh, a, a woman and a housewife and the concerns and psychological states of a housewife and the pressures of being a housewife and how those pressures like mirror uh, the pressures of getting away with murder, you know, or not murder, of covering up a murder, of, of coordinating your household to get away with a murder in which they are all entangled, you know. Uh, it's fascinating how it refracts off of the traditional earmarks of a noir to me. Well, it's funny too, because in the first, within 15 pages of this book, we've got a dead body, right? Within 20 pages, the body has been disposed of. And I guess it's almost sort of a twist. And maybe this is why I kind of connected it to like almost an Agatha Christie sort of English mentality, because it's almost a twist that it then becomes the domestic noir that it is, that it becomes more about her sustaining this household and this sort of, you know, what her, the way her kids expect her to act when she's mm -hmm. kind of covering up the secret. So it kind of gets the crime element out of there pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's less, it's less like a whodunit and more like a, what have I done? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's the noirish kind of element. It's like, Oh God, I, 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 I've done something bad and now the but but more what has my family done in this yeah. book you know what I mean that it's sort of almost like she does nothing wrong it's just she's got to bear the burden of her entire family that's her role in this is every dumb thing her family does falls on her back you know yeah. what I mean every but you're sort right, of short-sighted but you're right before we get too heavily into it chris let's do our aperitifs uh an artwork that we think would be a good thing to uh digest before going into reading the blank wall uh last time uh Stephen had some great picks other than the uh sansa holding book he mentioned um fatal by uh jean patrick manchette i read and now i'm a huge manchette fan uh Stephen, i really uh he's like my favorite left wing <laughs> noir writer these days um so steven let's start with you uh what what do you think people should look into before going into this book? well it's interesting because uh i i'm gonna choose uh an american max opal's film uh oh. <laughs> which is court which i think is the best <laughs> of the opal's yes film. it's uh a kind of uh noirish drama uh, starring James Mason, which is before, before um, his performance in The Reckless Moment, uh, Barbara Belgedis, and Robert Ryan, who is amazing in the film, as this horrible uh, millionaire called, uh, with a fantastic name, Smith Ulrich. And uh, he, uh, Barbara Belgedis is a kind of um, aspiring kind of model. She's, she's working on, she's got this job on the shop floor of a department store where she models clothes as a kind of like sort of walking, talking kind of shop dummy, which I guess was a thing back then. <laughs> and then meets, you know, meets this guy, you know, Robert Ryan, who's this millionaire and they get married. And then he's basically horrifically abusive to her, not necessarily physically, but, but psychologically to the point where she leaves him uh, and goes to uh, a kind of poor neighborhood where she meets up with James Mason, who is this kind of, uh, saintly kind of doctor who's you know doing that kind of job of tending to poor people in a rundown area you know and and obviously falls in love with him and and from then on it's this kind of uh triangle between the the three of them um but as i said i think it's i think it's the best of his american films and i think it's it's got a lot of those kind of trademark kind of max ophel's shots where he's just he's just so extra with the camera you know just yeah. move, moving across 
you know, from one side of a room to another, he's got to kind of, the camera's got to go up three feet and then down and, <laughs> and down and around. And yeah, he can't do anything. And, you know, it, I think Chris, you're right in terms of if you see his, his, you know, his other films and he, the fluidity and the liquidity of his, of his camera is astonishing in, the, in you know, in, in his non-American films. But Court, I think, gives you a good, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a sense of what he can do. And you know the backstory of it, right? Where uh, where he was fired from Vendetta by Howard Hawks, right? And the uh, the Ulrig is a very thinly veiled portrait of Howard Hawks, intended yeah. to be like a really stick it to him, this reclusive, insane, abusive billionaire portrait. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the context in which I most frequently hear that movie mentioned. Is that like the real picture of what people really thought of Howard Hawks? You know, kind of thing. What he was actually like. It's a it's a fascinating film. I don't want to I don't want to sell it short with my previous statements. He's an interesting director, you know. Like I said, Fritz Lang is always an interesting director, but uh, but Robert Ryan's amazing in it as well. He's, he yes. has that kind of Howard, uh, Howard Hughes kind of character. And what's interesting is Howard Hughes. What am I saying? Did I say Hawks five times? I I, I can't. Did you? I can't remember. I think I said Hawks. Howard Howard yeah. Hawks five times. <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting is that one of the. Uh, the, the short film that I made about I Do Not Want to Smoke, one of the actors on that was this um, older woman who had worked at the Nottingham Playhouse in the 60s when Robert Ryan came over and performed in Othello there for two months. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Uh, wow. Know, and she said her job was to kind of look after him and, and said he, he was absolutely lovely and charming. So there we go, a bit of a kind of, uh, you know, connection there yeah that's kind of a twist ending to that story too because he was one of those guys who was sort of famously in rough shape at various times i can't believe i said howard hawks five times you know this is one of those days too where like i've been tired all morning and before we start recording i was like i'm gonna get every name wrong i could feel this coming already i had a premonition so don't don't let me screw too much up um i am recommending uh Mildred Pierce, which uh, I had mentioned James and Kane before, but I'm going to say you should watch the Todd Haynes miniseries uh, starring Kate Winslet and Evan Rachel Wood uh, that was made in, I think, 2011. Um, you know, I, it's better or worse than the original. It's such its own separate thing. It's certainly a more high-gloss uh, Serkian melodrama take on the material. Um, but I think the original is certainly, you know, plenty high gloss, melodramatic as well. But uh, this book, it's to me, um, it would seem shocking to me that uh, uh, the blank wall was not inspired, at least in part, by Mildred Pierce. I would be very, very surprised to hear that. And I think that Todd Haynes uh, is a filmmaker I love. John and I is one of the the favorites of the Pink Smoke, um, and this. And I think Mildred Pierce was his last giant, massive masterpiece. You know, I think after that, he's made interesting movies, but I, that that's, to me, the last big home run that he did. And I think because it's a miniseries made for cable, it gets overlooked a little bit. You know, those kind of films have a tendency to disappear from the cultural memory faster than feature films. You know, a less successful feature film will live longer than a very successful miniseries. So I would say watch that. It's a lot of fun. And I think that will put you uh, in kind of exactly the right mindset for this book. Not, not a uh, deep cut, not a complicated answer, but one I stand by. 
Sure, no, that's a great choice. I love, I love, I love the book of Mildred Pierce. I love all the iterations of it, actually. <laughs> so, and yeah, that, that miniseries was great too. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know they had to add a murder to it for the original movie. You know, that wasn't yeah. like a crime story per se. Yeah. Which, uh, when you say blank wall is obviously inspired by it, it seems like, well, it was almost like they added a murder to it and that, there you go, you got the blank wall. <laughs> true. Very true. That's funny. I, you know, and I didn't even think of it in those terms, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, my, my selection makes even more sense, John. You've just drawn it out. It's an even better <laughs> that, that, choice That was than my I intention thought. all along. John, what's your selection? My selection is the movie Mother, not the Darren Aronofsky film, but rather the Bong Joon-ho film from 2009, um, which is superior not only to Aronofsky's film, but also to Parasite, I would say. Uh, I wish it had gotten as much attention and accolades as Parasite had, although then maybe there would have been a backlash against it, and I would hate that movie as well. Um, it's a great film uh, about an um, elderly woman who's living with uh, her son in South Korea, uh, and then there's a murder of a young woman, who the son who uh, definitely has some kind of un, you know, undiagnosed... Uh, dis disability is taken in by the cops and uh, they, they force a confession and everyone in the town is convinced that he did it, that he murdered this young woman and so it becomes the perspective of this uh, of his mother who goes out and has to prove that he didn't do it and you know kind of turn gumshoe a little bit and talk to people and get evidence and it becomes this sort of desperate uh, need for her to clear her son's name and get him off even though he does not appreciate it like he has this very fatalistic view of the whole situation uh even before there are further de developments i don't want to give too much away about the plot but uh he seems to be completely fine with uh you know being sent up the river for this murder and thrown in jail and hated by everybody in the town but she won't accept that so it becomes sort of the, the story of a mother's love even at the hesitation of this, the one receiving it, of the son themselves, which of course the blank wall has a lot of, of, you know, the mother trying to do these things for a daughter who is unappreciative, uh, who lashes out against her mother's uh, gentleness and caring. And in fact, tells her more or less to her face that she wants to be the exact opposite of what her mother is, that she almost detests the kind of life that her mother has settled into. So uh, Bong Joon-ho's mother would be my recommendation. It's an interesting, that's a great choice. And it, uh, do you remember one thing that I think about with that movie too, is that presentation we saw at Kevin Geeks Out, I think it was in the character actors one, that the star of that movie, Kim uh, Hee-ja, was like a popular, like, um, a South Korean, like, TV actress, right? Mm. She was, like, known for being in, like, commercials as like a mother figure you know right. it's sort She's of like if you made this movie starring felicia rashad or something that she was a sort of symbol of like cultural wholesomeness and motherhood and to cast her in that role ha has an interesting dimension which is something i always think about which i wasn't aware of until we saw this presentation do you remember the guest who gave that i'd love to give them credit right now but i cannot think of their name off the i, top I of my can't head. off the top of my head remember who gave that presentation but that was interesting to find out that she was this uh almost like one of the golden girls over in korea yes, she was like yeah. the mom figure in all these uh beloved miniseries and commercials and she is yeah. fantastic in in yeah. uh almost film. like a betty white type you know yeah. that sort of somebody who you would put in a commercial to just evoke feelings of motherness and stuff yeah and the the film's strength too is it becomes a one-woman show and her performance is strong enough that it carries the film so 
That's another Sorry. great choice, yeah, thematically. That's 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 great to, to pair up with the blank wall. Yeah, I think that I think that they are definitely a connection between them. And so yeah, go ahead. Oh, Chris. no, I was gonna say, so Stephen, with this book, was this was this your entry point? Because this is the first uh uh book I've read by by holding. Was this your entry point? Was this somewhere in the middle of the pack? What's your what's the background with no, this uh, was, blank wall? I, I'd already read, I think I I bought um I think my introduction were, were these. I, I bought an Ace Double. Do you know the Ace Double paperbacks where you get no they're, they're right, yeah. Ace published them in the in in the fifties. And basically, they're two books. Um, oh yes, Sorry. yeah. So <laughs> the one's basically back to back with the other one. So you turn the book over, and there's you know there's two front covers essentially. And, and so there was the Innocent Mrs. Duff and the Virgin Huntress were were both together in in, in this single volume. I read both of those and loved both of them. And then I, I think I mentioned online, oh, you know, I you know, read these books and they're great. And somebody recommended the blank board. So we've got to read this next. And I did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'd previously, I'd already seen The Reckless Moment. So I, so I kind of, you know, had an awareness of, of, of the story, you know. Um, but, but it's interesting, again, sort of, you know, looking at the, the film versions, I, I think neither film version really captures the voice of the book, you know, and what's really interesting about the book, uh, which is which is her character, this, you know, this, this character, uh, Lucia, um, who who is at the centre of this um, death, murder? Is, the, that's a, is, it, is it a murder? It's a, it's a let, let, me, let me give a quick synopsis just so we can kind of get that out of the way sure. and then and then talk, talk uh, freely about it after that. So... Uh, I was asking Chris earlier because it's a little amb- ambitious where it's set. Uh, I think it's Connecticut. It's it's somewhere where within driving you know distance of New York City, but they keep saying New York, so I'm assuming it's not upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So possibly Connecticut, but it's it's wartime, World War II, uh, and Lucia Holly lives in a lakeside country home with her 17 year old daughter Beatrice, known as B, her son David, and her elderly widowed father, uh, and also her housekeeper Sybil. Her husband is a naval officer who's serving in the Pacific, uh, leaving her to deal with domestic problems such as B's fraternization with uh, Ted Darby, who is a married oh, art, Ted dealer, Darby. art dealer, pornographer, embezzler. Uh, I don't like that guy just away. to look at him. Don't, don't <laughs> even like the look of that guy. You can tell Ted Darby's trouble. Just from his name, you can tell. It's <laughs> I immediately thought of, uh, oh... Mark Darcy from Married with Children. I can't think Ted, his name is Ted, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ted McGinley, right? Yes, you, I was never going to be able to remember that. <laughs> that, smug, that smug face of Ted McGinley is who I immediately pictured. Just you know who the I pictured the whole book was the guy in Cry of the Owl and Chabrol's Cry of the Owl who plays the, the villain, the boyfriend character. I kept oh, picturing yeah. him. Yeah. I think he's very terribly cast in that movie, but he would have been great as Ted Darby. <laughs> Uh, so many. So, so Lysia steps out of her comfort zone to confront this guy. He makes it clear he's not going to discourage the relationship with B. So when he shows up at their boathouse, Lucia's father goes out to talk with them. There's a bit of a scuffle. The father pushes Darby into the water, which is where Lucia finds him impaled on an anchor early the next morning. And so she is forced then to put the body in a boat, row it out to an island and dump it there, uh, wanting to protect both her father and the reputation of her daughter, what she does not anticipate is that letters B had written to Darby uh, compromising letters are now in the possession of a pair of gangsters, bootleggers and rum runners named Martin Donnelly and Carly Nagel who approach her with uh, intentions of blackmail 
and the situation is further complicated, to say the least, when Darby's body is discovered. So that's sort of our setup here. One one thing about it, too, is that the story stays with Lucia the whole time. So we don't witness the murder as readers, right? And we only hear the father's report of it, which is very mild. And what actually happened to Ted Darby, whether the gangsters are involved, whether B is involved, what actually, you know, at one point there was a, a sense that Sybil had some involvement with it to me, um, is, is left very wide open, is that we're left to speculate. The official story in Lucia's head is my father pushed him down, he fell on the anchor, but there's reason to believe that more uh, uh, malignant stuff, malicious, malevolent stuff befell Ted outside of the shove onto an anchor, you know? And right. in fact, so the, the point anchor that we're shoves- almost, It's almost a surprise that it doesn't get resolved in that way, that it does become a twist later on to find out, oh, it was actually yes. B who did it or something like that. Yes, yeah. it's, it's very intentionally ambiguous. It's about, this book is very much about her interpretation of events and behaviors, right? Everything is sort of filtered through her brain, which is um, a mixture of uh, sort of in denial and naive and surprisingly strong. And it's a fascinating character. Stephen, you had said that what attracted you to the book is that, that this character is the dominant uh, creation of it and the thing around which it's built. What do you, what's your reaction to the character? Do you, do you take, uh, take umbrage with any of the ways in which I've described her so far? No, no, not at all. I, I think she's just a very interesting character study because she is someone who, you know, the, the, there's this whole thing of sacrifice that kind of go, goes through goes through the book you know various people sacrifice you mm-hmm. know themselves in, in various ways um and she has she's somebody who has an idea of herself you know that that she is this kind of you know she's a mother she's a she's a housewife um which this situation that she's thrust into and she has to deal with on her own because her husband's not there um seems to alert her to the, 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 the realities of, of her life, you know, and, and what she, you know, who she is. It's, it's, it's like it almost occasions this, this kind of self-reflection about, well, who am I? You know, she talks at various points in the book about not feeling real, feeling like a doll. And it's almost like that she's yeah. held in, you know, and what's interesting is the beginning of the book, she is worried about her 17-year-old daughter, you know, who's been, seeing this this terrible ted darby a uh, 35 year old guy you know I, I think lucia is is 37 so it's it's somebody who's like you know contemporaneous with her um but later on in the book we find out that lucia was was married was was started seeing her husband at 17 was married by 18 was giving birth by 19 you know she she wasn't that much older than her daughter is now when she started mm-hmm. living a fully adult sexual life you know, but her great fear is, is, you know, obviously it's different because there's this, you know, Ted Darby there, but, but this idea that her daughter's got to be protected, it's almost like um, she's looking back at her own self uh, at the age of 17, which was the point where her life changed and she, and she entered into the life she's in now, which is of a suburban wife and, and, and mother, and thinking, well, what, you know, what have I been doing? Who am I? What identity do I have? And, and so the whole book it sort of revolves around that. And once she starts having this um, relationship with, with Donnelly, who's one of the kidnappers, who, who you know, 
turns up and starts asking her for money and then um, engenders, you know, he, he has some kind of sympathy for her and the two of them start spending more and more time together in this relationship that is not necessarily romantic, but also not necessarily not romantic. <laughs> it's, you know, yes. she's married and, you know, and there's nothing kind of improper that goes on. It's clearly but, an emotional affair, at least for Donnelly. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that, that he, everything he does is sort of this swelling um, affection and awe he has for this woman, this hardened criminal for this woman and how she's handling this situation. And that is, if the book does have a twist, it's how he becomes her ally in a lot of ways. And not even her ally, like her alkalite, you know, like somebody, an agent on her behalf who's willing to sacrifice himself for her. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Sorry, John, go ahead. No, go ahead, Stephen. I, I was going to say, it's one of the things that I think um, in the film versions, I think in the, in, the, in the Reckless Moment, you kind of buy it, this, this, this kind of relationship with James Mason. I think in the deep end, you don't really buy it at all, Tilda Swinton. And um, it's uh, Goran Viznich, isn't it, who plays yeah. the Donnelly character. That's all I remember about that movie is how bad he is in that part. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work. You don't ever get the sense that the two of them have this emotional you know connection you just don't ever ever get that and that and that's really the fundamental relationship in in the book is between the 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 two of them and and what each of them sees in the other and what each of them reflects in the other you know and again you know Donnelly is someone who when he tells his story talks about that he left his home uh when he was 15 or 16 so again it's somebody who's had this big life-changing event happen around the time of you know around the age of, of uh, Lucia's daughter. And, and you know, there, there's this, all of these kind of mirroring kind of things going on. With, yes, within, and how his world travels mirror what her husband's going through, that yeah. her husband has left and traveled the world and will likely come back a different person is also sort of looming over it as well, is that she's staying the same while the world is changing around her, I think is a lot yeah. of the theme of the book as well. And sort of her anxiety about having been preserved in amber starting at like age 17 which is her daughter's criticism of hers you don't know anything about the world and sort of her growing fear that that's true you know she does have that monologue at one point about like i've never been on any adventures i've been a housewife how come they say housewife you know how come they don't say mother or wife or any of that you know that you just get contextualized in this very specific way that wants to erase you you know that that the word house wife is like an identity erasure you know she has this thought within it as well she has a great line doesn't, doesn't she where she says you know why they call it a housewife what would i be called if we all lived in a hotel yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's this great kind of sense of like i say there's this real self-analysis going on but i think yeah. what's what's interesting that is that along with that that kind of uh you know anxiety about who she is she also has this you know, enormous strength um, so that her first instinct, once she finds this this body, who she assumes has been killed by her her father, you know, in... Accidentally. In, uh, yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. Is, to, is to load the corpse into a boat, drive across a lake and then deposit it somewhere. You know, and it's like that. <laughs> the 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 presence of mind and 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 the instinct to do that is almost like she you know it's just there yeah and, well and, it's and also a funny joke on like 
tidying up. You know what I mean? And like the emotional labor of tidying up everybody's messes as well, I think is an intentional play that she does what she's been uh, cast into that role to do of people in my house messed it up. Now I go around and I clean up after them. You know? But what's really interesting, I think, is, is that her role is also, there's also an ambiguity there because the other main character and the really interesting character in the book for me is Sybil, who's the yeah. who's an American housemate who has been with the family for eight years, but about whom you see her knows practically nothing. You know, yeah. At the the book starts. And, but, the way she talks about Sybil is that is that Sybil is the one who keeps the house running. Sybil is the one who, who yeah. the food. Yeah, there's there's another great scene where where she goes out to the garden to do some gardening and she and she writes about how oh yeah, Evie just thinks I know what I'm doing, but I don't. I'm just sort of now here poking at things. I don't. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She is this this running this house when actually Sybil yeah. is the one who behind the scenes. That's one, of my, that's one of the funniest moments of the book, in fact, is when Sybil's got to do the shopping and um, uh, she offers to do it for her and Sybil has this real like, no, let me do it. <laughs> you know, like you're yeah. just going to mess it up. I know what I'm doing. This is my this is my area of expertise. <laughs> you know, this is my part of running the house. That That is my one criticism of the book is that Sybil does drift into magical Negro territory a little bit, that she is the one who, who sort of has all of her shit together completely and has wisdom. I think that she is not um, necessarily merely a prop. And I think that one of the interesting things to me about the book is the way in which Sybil is given a deeper characterization and sort of um, uh, Lucia's obliviousness about her is a thematic point, you know, that this relationship of relying on her to fix all my problems, it's almost a, a proto early version of pulling apart the magical Negro cliche in a lot of ways that it's, it's, clearly something that that Sanchez Holding has noticed in fiction and is commenting on. You know, if you want to say, well, she doesn't quite get all the way there, that's still that kind of cliched stereotype character. I'm not going to put up a huge argument against you, but I do think that to her credit, uh, the reveal of characterization and the reveal of her backstory and the reveal of her roles and her mechanism in it is an intentionally explored aspect of the character. Let's go to... I was just going to say, what's interesting is when you look at the depiction of Sybil in The Reckless Moment is is that she just becomes this background character. She's just there yeah. uh, who wanders in and out of scenes and just does what she's told and has barely more than about 10 lines of dialogue. Whereas in the book, I, you know, I don't disagree with you in, you know, in, terms of, in, in terms of the hint of that kind of characterization. But I also think her backstory and what she says about her backstory is fascinating in terms of this theme of, of, of sacrifice, you know? Yeah. Um, are we okay to talk about the, the, the uh, kind of, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but, but oh, we always do full, spo- full spoilers on here. Essentially, you know, Sybil's story. And again, like you see, it says, you know, oh, I don't really know anything about her. I don't even know where she lives or if she's married. You know, she finds out that Sybil is married and that her husband is, is currently, what is it, like 17? 18 years he's been in prison. He has another six? Seven, seven years ago, yeah, 25 yeah. years. And that she's promised to wait for him. And he's in prison basically because um, he 
he was a sailor and you know when they married they uh she got pregnant and she lost the baby and then he her husband wanted to take her on a on a voyage to paris where he said that you know uh you know people like us you can just walk the streets and there's, there's no there's no problem you know meaning black basically when they got to the office to buy a ticket uh the guy refused to sell them one um, hit her husband, her husband hit him back and then was arrested for assault and is now in prison for 25 years. But what's interesting about her story is, is that, you know, um, Lucia says, well, that's, you know, it's so great that, that you're waiting for him, you know, that you're making that sacrifice. She says, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I should have done. You know, if it hadn't been me there waiting for him, he would have found something else and maybe yeah. I could have travelled the world. You know, so there's this, this sense that this sacrifice that she's made may not have been worth it yeah and in terms of the context of the book and what happens in the book and what Lucia is doing at that moment I think that's a really interesting kind of mirror to what's going on with her you know, is sacrifice worth it you know how do you balance that out does it mean anything that's one of the reasons that you know the Mildred Pierce uh, connection seems so obvious to me as these are both books about, and we haven't even talked about B much, who's the, her affair with Ted Darby kicks all of this off. This is a book about a good mother with a shithead daughter, right? Like Mildred Pierce. That's fundamentally what this is about. I think that, that B doesn't ever become as, as vile uh, as that daughter, but it's still definitely one of the things the book wants you to think about is what does parental sacrifice means, you know? And uh, I think that it's actually sympathetic to, to B. I think that it has an acknowledgement of how B is working out her issues about becoming an adult through her mother and is sort of unaware that uh, she's using her mom as a punching bag to like deal with her own internal issues about things. And I think the book is sympathetic to that, even as it makes you, you know, sort of hate B, especially in the early going where she's such a know-it-all and she's so arrogant. She won't listen to her mom, even as she's causing all these problems and her mom is trying to fix them for her, where it's the same thing where it's, you know, you definitely have moments as a reader where you go, God, what is, what does that sacrifice mean to just like a rotten kid like that? You know, like, why would you do that? Which is especially, of course, what Mildred Pierce is about, which is why, you know, you think of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, what's interesting as well with with B is is that you know the whole story kicks off because you know Lucia doesn't want B hanging around with this direct, disreputable guy, and then yeah. what happens is that Lucia starts hanging around with a disreputable guy, and yeah. B starts getting really like, "What are you doing? I can't believe you're you're seeing this guy. What's happening?" You know, it starts because she's imagining the two of them are, are having an affair. So suddenly you get this kind of role reversal with. With, with the two of them where exactly the same thing that she was complaining to be about at the beginning is, is, you know, she's doing, you know, maybe even worse, you know, because, you know, maybe Donnelly is worse than, you know, than, than Darby was in terms of, you know, yeah. And cheating on your husband who's away at war is definitely worse than, than hooking up with some smooth talking heel named Darby, you know, kind <laughs> of thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't even I didn't even think about that uh, flip with it. It's fascinating too, um, in the context of 
the children that B and David, the other son who's 15, the other child who's 15, hold their mom to such an incredibly high moral standard. And just when she wants to take the motorboat out by herself, David, the son is like, the neighbors are going to see you. What the fuck are they going to think? What are you, you're ruining our life, mom. Kind of, you know, although he's very like a, uh, uh, pretentious, you know, 15 going on 40 kind of personality type of kid. So he definitely Oh my God, the short story that he writes. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have that kind of meltdown in the same way, but it is fascinating to see how conscious the book is of your children are holding you to this moral standard and forcing you into this role that is um, about propriety that the the social pressure is not a general social pressure that she feels from the neighbors that it's very much internally generated that the pressure of her family is the big pressure that drives all this it's not about murder it's not even about fear of going to jail most of the time that things that run through her head over and over are, uh, my father will react this way, it will break his heart, or he'll be too honest with the police, or X, Y, and Z, this will happen to B, B's reputation will be ruined, B's heart will be broken, uh, B will get in trouble with pregnancy, you know, those are the things that are most on her mind about it, and rarely does this will affect me in X way enter into it, but I think that in some ways, uh, I don't want to say it's inadvertent, but it's certainly, um, there's a measure of this book ends up being a a critique of like the obliviousness of white feminism, where it never occurs to her like, you can fucking go to jail for this forever, you know? It just doesn't even ever occur to her that the police aren't fundamentally on her side. She's always making this detective levy wait for her so she can go lay down. She makes the criminals wait so she can like serve lunch and have tea. She's, it's this total, um, uh, uh, she is totally in charge of the world also in some ways that like the actual danger and the actual problems of reality don't penetrate her in that way. They don't affect her psyche uh, in that way. It's sort of like the proprietary rules affect her more than the actual danger of it. You know, she doesn't throw up or have a hard time disposing of the body or have some moral uh, dilemma about getting rid of the body in that way. She doesn't have fear of law enforcement. It's a very um, insulated, insular uh, character in that way, which is also fascinating about it to me. Do you think that some of that is intentional, Stephen, or do you think that that's residue of picking this character and trying to portray them accurately? I, I think it's intentional because I think there's a really interesting thing with, with class in the book where, you know, you're right, there is this kind of uh, sense that Lucia is, is always worried about kind of propriety and about what, you know, what respectability and, you know, and I think that there's this other family, the Lloyds, who are obviously wealthier and more well-to-do than Lucia's family who, because they invite her to the club, the, you know, the, the boat club, which they're not members of, but they invite her over, you know, and there's this idea that, you know, that the David and B being friends with his family is, you know, it's very good for them socially, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've got, the, you know, these other characters, you know, you've got Donnelly and you've got Sybil, you know, both of whom are kind of a, a lower class level in, ter- you know, in, in, in terms of the, you know, the characters in the book. And both of them are... They are, see her as a society lady. 
Exactly. This this is one of the attractions for Donnelly. He calls her classy, you know, and, yeah. and always kind of on his best behaviour when when he sees her. But there's also uh, both Donnelly and uh, Sybil uh, class themselves as realists. You know, they're both described as realists. Yeah. And you know, they're, 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 there's a sentence like later on in the book where you know it, it emerges that Sybil has been in contact with with Donnelly about something that <laughs> she didn't didn't even know about. And it's like, well, she's like me. She's a realist, and this idea that that at that kind of class level, you have to be a realist. You can't have the same kind of dreams and ambitions and kind of. Do you know what I mean you, there's a pragmatism to it that yeah. does not necessarily exist if you haven't grown up in that same way. If you haven't experienced, you know, obviously, you know, Donnelly and Sybil have different kind of experiences due to kind of, you know, race and background, for example. But but that you know, Lucia is is miles away from from the the background that they have and doesn't have that same kind of uh, realism to her. Well, it yeah. becomes even more interesting because of rationing that's going on in this book and how, uh, in a weird way, the family has become almost the the needy ones because they can't get butter and they can't get, and their refrigerator is broken and they can't get a guy to come look at it. They can't take out the car too often because of the gas shortage. Uh, and these other characters who kind of are more savvy to how the world works uh, and, you know, how to kind of operate like black market things and whatnot can get what they need and get cigarettes and hams and beef and all of that for them. You know, I love love all the rationing stuff and all the stuff of just trying her, trying to like her her and and Sybil mainly (laughs) trying to kind of organize the household when, you know, you can't get, you know, there's a whole subplot about getting the laundry done and, you know, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Not being able to get the laundry picked up. That was also to what you're saying about, about class. There's the scene where she goes to the grocery store and she's fantasizing that she's important enough that people will have to respect her and not elbow into her and pretend to want to be nice to her, that she's fantasizing about being that level of class. You know, the other Donnelly's co-conspirator in the blackmail and the actual, uh, guy the book portrays as the villain uh nagel keeps calling her a society lady and it's driving her nuts right like she this is one of the few things in the books that makes her furiously angry is being called a society lady and it reminds me of what i always joke about which is that like you will never meet a rich person in your life if you're middle class right and you have a lot more money than poor people if poor person says to you you're rich you go what are you talking about you know i'm middle class i know doctors and lawyers now those guys are rich they make like hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and if you go to those doctors and lawyers make hundred and fifty thousand say you're rich they say are you kidding me i'm not rich i know businessmen who own car dealerships and legal firms and those guys make a million dollars a year. And if you go to that guys, those doctors and uh, people in car dealerships who make a million, you say, you're rich. They say, are you kidding? There's people on our board who make $50 million a year. We're not rich. So you never in your life will meet anybody who's rich because they'll all point upwards. People who live in Boca Raton will laugh when you call their big house a mansion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was pretty funny. We, <laughs> we visited a girlfriend of mine who like had one of those Boca Raton mansions. And John was like, look at this mansion. And she thought it was hilarious. That was described in a mansion. I was like, you have three refrigerators in your kitchen. Like this is a, a big, this is a big place, young lady. Um, 
but I think that Lucia is a, a, uh, Lucia is a good example of that, of somebody who isn't aware of her station and thinks of herself as like, well, we've got to deal with the rations and my husband's a soldier, that she would never position herself as one of those people who belongs to the club. You know what I mean? And the contrast is intentional there. You know, the tension between these classes is definitely intentional in the book. And her obliviousness, not obliviousness, but a lack of understanding of the nuance of it is I, I, I think when you were talking earlier about the kind of uh, Holden's intent in, in regards to the character, I think there's an interesting bit right near the end of the book where Lucia is like in bed and Sybil comes in and says, you know, the, I think the police are here or the, the lieutenant wants to see you. And she said, look, can you just, you know, keep everybody away from me? I can't deal with it at the moment. Just keep everybody away from me. And Sybil says, I'll try. Yeah. And she has this line and she says, oh, you just, how heartless she is. <laughs> yeah. How heartless Sybil is. Yeah. Can't she see how much I'm suffering here? And you just think Sybil is, is doing, you know, all yeah. the work here, both physically, you know, domestically, emotionally, a lot of labor you are putting onto her and not even recognizing it. So yeah. I, I think that's a, yeah, definitely, you know, the intent was there to kind of show that. I think that, that you see, it just doesn't, doesn't, there's also the funny bit at the end where she says to Livy, like, give me till tomorrow morning to fix this. And he's <laughs> like, okay. And she's like, I just can't deal with this right now. I need a nap. <laughs> at first he's like, are you kidding? I am yeah. threatening to arrest you right now. He's <laughs> like, I know, but like lunch, you know. You have dinner coming up. It's, yeah. I'm so sleepy. I took a sleeping pill. Get out of my face, Levy. You know, that kind of thing that's very recognizably. And he, and that he obeys, I think, is realistic small town police procedure too, that, that he would give her a space to work the stuff out that he wouldn't give to Sybil or Nagel, you know, or, yeah. or Ted Darby. Um, in a way that I, I think is... is uh, is actually realistic. I was going to ask you, uh, Stephen, I was surprised after I read the book, I was doing research that that Levy character is like uh, Holdings' continuing character, that she has a bunch of novels written around him. He's He makes no impression in this book. He could not be more generic in this. Have you read any of the other Levy novels? I don't think so. I've read four other of Holdings' books and I don't I mean, it could be that he's as bland in those other books. <laughs> I just didn't realize that it was the same guy. But no, I, and yeah. as far as I know, no, I don't, I don't think he, he has been. Or I, I could be wrong. It's just, but yeah, like you say, he, you know, in, in this, he's just, I, I think he does have a couple of interesting scenes where he, he basically, you know, because there is this thing that um, the police find a shopping list under the body. They yeah. don't know who it belongs to. So it's a, a, a good scene where uh, Lucy is invited to a picnic with the Lloyds and uh, Lieutenant Levy comes along as well and he's talking to her about food. And he says, oh, do you like this? I can't remember what it was. Do you like this particular type of jam? She goes, oh, yes, we always buy that. And then she sees oh. it like, over in his head like, okay, because obviously that was on the shopping list. And there's yeah. you know, moments like that where you think, oh, that was smart and she was dumb. <laughs> you know, she's... So I think that that's the bit that I kind of uh, remember in terms in terms of him as a character. I mean, I would say it's funny to say that was smart and she was dumb. My one not it's not even a criticism of the book. This is definitely a book that generates its narrative tension off of you yelling at the character, "Stop doing dumb things," mm. you know, like tell your daughter she fucked up. 
tell the dad that this happened. You know what I mean? That you definitely feel like, don't go with Donnelly, don't try and hawk your jewelry, just over and over again. Like, if you go to the police, right now everything will be fine, you know, kind of thing where you are doing dumb things, you know? And I think that, again, it's thematically worked into it, but it's definitely of the genre where the narrative driver is, oh, no, don't do that. You know what I mean? Kind of to get everything that we've been saying about her role as a housewife that she kind of just kind of sets automatically how she yeah. kind of gets rid of the body in a way that's like cleaning up, you know, after her family and things like that. I think it's the same thing where it's like, I'm just going to take a nap and then tomorrow I'll tell the police what happened. You know, it's just, she just what doesn't is she, understand. James Bond? <laughs> she, she doesn't understand the levity of what's happening because she thinks like, it's just another orderly thing that I have to take care of that I have to like set up. There's a great sequence where uh, something, something very important is happening. She has to go and take care of right away, but she decides to go and make a bed. And then after she makes that bed, she's like, well, I got to make another bed real quick yeah. and then she's like oh and i gotta take care of this other thing and it's funny because it really gets into that like house cleaning sort of mentality of like once you start you can't stop you got to make sure everything is done um but there's another, just there's as progressive chores which, which i think it, it is really interesting which is when she's in that sequence because she's going she's supposed to meet donnelly in the boathouse and you're right yeah. and she cleans up and she makes a bed but then she goes to make b's bed and she goes i have to make a bed make her bed Otherwise, she'll think I don't love her. And it's that idea that yeah. she's doing this not because it's it done, but because that's the, the currency of love in, in that family is, you know, I do things for you. That's yeah. how she sees her relationship with her daughter. I do things for you. And because I do those things, you will love me. And it's, it's quite a sad lonely yeah. time you know for, but because B up to that point has been her- horrific to her you could keep saying to her things like you know I, I, I can't imagine anything worse than to end up like you I can't you know just stuck yeah. in a house you know being a housewife you've got basically tells her you, you've got no life you know and, they, and this is you know to, to the mother who behind the scenes is doing everything she can to you know stave off this disgrace for supposed disgrace for her daughter. Yeah. Although again, you know, this is one of those things where Donnelly later on goes, you know, she'd get over it. Again, yeah. which echoes again this kind of idea of, uh, of of Sybil's story, which is, you know, people get over it. Things will, something will happen and that, and, you know, you don't necessarily need to make the sacrifice. So it yeah. calls into question, you know, why is she doing this sacrifice? Is it just this instinct, you know, like, like John says, this kind of, domestic kind of instinct to kind of tidy things up and to do things or is it because you know for once she has you know a specific purpose you know which she doesn't really doesn't really have up, up to then she, again she she talks about not being real not you know being a doll Sybil does most of the housework and most of the house management she doesn't really she doesn't really have a role as a wife because you know her, her husband's away you know so so the only thing she, that she's got really is, is to be a mother yeah, well, it's and- it's interesting. When I was first reading it, uh, again to to contrast with Mildred Pierce, I felt like this is building up to her. Like this kid is getting a spanking. You know what I mean? Like this kid is getting put in their place that she's going to stand up for herself and not be walked over. I forget which character says to her, "They'll respect you more if you don't let them walk all over you." You know. Um, And, but halfway through, it becomes clear that is not what this character is. She will never let people stop 
walking all over in that way that her relationship is will never be to be to say to her you did something dumb with ted darby and this is a consequence of doing something dumb and you should have listened to my wisdom and now you got to because you got us into this mess and i'm going to get us out but like this is your fault she's never going to issue that that uh that that parental censure of her kid in that way which i think is fascinating i think it's a uh, it's it's a more original way to go with that character that this book is not about her taking charge of the household in that way that it's really not about her finding herself or finding her self-confidence at all it's sort of like a, a dream that she escapes through deus ex machina basically that yeah. you know a good-hearted gangster shows up to solve all of the problems by sacrificing himself and taking all of the blame um that there's something yeah. you know the religious connotations are obviously pointed and intentionally there that he was studying to be in the seminary and he talks a lot about faith and that like he's going to sacrifice himself in an act of faith uh i think is is intentionally um it ends up having a funny implication whether it's intentional or not of her being a good christian who just like if if you're lucia you get into heaven that's just the way it is you know kind of thing well he definitely yeah. gives her like this sainthood right that he yeah thinks that she is this perfectly innocent person who he now needs to save it's funny because when you were um when you're critiquing the sybil character you know as a possible magical negro type character i had a similar sort of reaction to donnelly when he was introduced where it seemed like oh okay since the husband's gone now she's got a man who can help her this helpless woman, yeah. you know, who can't do anything to save herself. But it became more fascinating and kind of more clear the further it went along that he is kind of misjudging her and misunderstanding her standing the same way that she kind of doesn't, is, is, is oblivious to it. And yeah. it leads up to this whole thing where, uh, you know, even though he says, I'm going to take care of everything, I'm going to clear everything up with, uh, with Nagel, you're not going to have to worry about anything. Nagel in the meantime has developed this incredible contempt for her because they both think of her as being this, you know, untouchable woman of high class who, you know, is looking down upon them and, you know, can weasel out of this uh, scheme that they've cooked up and is smarter than they are. Um, and is going to take advantage through her feminine wiles is going to lead Donnelly and on down the top the of that is going to steal Donnelly away from him because yeah, because he's uh, gotten in, he's fallen in love with her, but it's great. Well, it's when, really things I think it, it, is that because the book is so focused on Lucia's kind of, um, you know, we're with her all the time that I think that there's, there's a nice scene where uh, Donnelly takes her for, for lunch at this kind of in this back room of this restaurant that he knows just the two of them. Which again, she never seems to have like that much worry about the fact that she's being like alone. She's a married woman alone with yeah. this guy. Well, but she says like, it's like, oh, it's like one of those private dining rooms like you read about in books, like, you know, like yeah. the makeout spots with the, <laughs> is a waiter going to, she has the line about, is a waiter going to drug my drink, wink, wink kind of thing. And, but like doesn't, but exactly what you're saying, the danger of the reality never seems to penetrate her consciousness no, in any way. No, absolutely. And she, um, uh, I, can't, I think I've lost my thread of what I was going to say now. <laughs> because someone interrupted you? Is that the reason? Because someone, jumped in, because someone jumped in, possibly, and cut your train of thought off? No, that she's going back with them and never realizes because it's built in her point of view. You were talking about that she doesn't realize the danger she's walking into there. 
Yeah, well, I, I guess it's just that we don't know. That's what I was going to say. Is, is that we 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 she describes herself. You know, she describes herself as you know. I think like not exactly beautiful at the beginning, and yeah. And when Donnelly first enters, it's like you know he could be handsome. So there's this both kind of you know this sense that they're both on the same level of kind of yeah attractiveness. I I, I guess, but we yeah because we're with her all the time. Yeah, we don't really get to see to know how Donnelly really sees her, you know, um, until this moment where they're in the club and she has this realization of how he he sees her. What do you mean? And and that he sees her as beautiful. It's almost like up until that point she hadn't realized that that was that was on his mind or that that was a thing, even though it seems obvious to us as a, as a reader, like, you know, here is a guy who's supposed to be a blackmailer who's supposed to be getting $5,000 from you. And he's bending over backwards to the extent of putting in his own money, you know, giving up his share of that cash to negotiating for more time for you to sending you, ham and beef from the black market to sorting out your he's doing everything for you do you know what I mean it seems only yeah. at this point you realize oh god yeah he you know he, he thinks I'm I'm beautiful like it's again it's this this kind of only very slowly awakening sense of self-awareness that happens throughout the book almost like you said like she has been sleeping you know sleepwalking through life and it's just that this series of events you know, that, that, that occur once she finds that body are the things that start waking her up. It's almost like she's so busy deflecting B's accusations that she's having this affair with him and just thinks it's so ridiculous mm. that, she, that she doesn't feel that way, that she doesn't see that he's clearly falling yeah. for her. Well, that's another funny, funny mirroring where she looks at B and Ted Darby and is like, this is obviously bad. And B doesn't see it. And she, in fact, says, I had no idea, mom, after he's dead and his background came this out. She's like, I didn't think he was like that. I didn't know he was married. I didn't know he was involved in criminal enterprise. Oh, my God, how could I not see? And then the mirror is, of course, B doing the same thing to her with Donald. He of saying, this is obviously bad, mom. What are you doing? And her not getting it. You know, it's, a, it's an inversion of it. Yeah, and holding kind of showing us her self-awareness in the scene where she's on the train and she meets, meets uh, Richard Hoopendike, right? Dick Hoopendike, yeah. um, who is very... Uh, He's a wolf. Very blatantly, you know, uh, <laughs> propositioning her. And she reacts in a, like a very, I, yeah, I know what this is, sort of way. Uh, and she's e- easily able to, you know, get rid of him. Is this something she, she could have but done? But she also the, gets the cigarette too, I think is a very telling also thing. Also works. Into, yeah. But is, yeah. is this how she would react at the beginning of the book? You know, would she have even have realized what was going on in this situation is, you know. Well, the cigarettes are almost like this kind of running thing, aren't they? That she's always sneaking out for a cigarette or bumming a cigarette off somebody or somebody's giving her a cigarette. And it's almost like the more cigarettes she has, the more she, she kind of you know, awakens, you know, the more she yeah. kind of realizes. But it's it. also a statement about the character where cigarettes are completely un- impossible to get because of the rationing and several yeah. characters count on that. But she always has them somehow. Yeah. And I think that's a commentary on the character of this is somebody who everything falls right for at all times. And she doesn't have an awareness of why things 
fall right for her always, you know, that she doesn't realize being like an upper middle class, beautiful white woman, like things are going to go your way. The police are going to listen to you when you tell them, I need to take a nap, you know, Sybil's going to work for you. Donnelly's going to fall in love with you and take the rap, you know, all of these different things, you know, just sort of like the world is your oyster with uh, an obliviousness to why that is the case, you know? And again, like her description of not quite beautiful, it's, it's that, how can you even trust that statement from her of not quite beautiful? You know, which is what, yeah, which forms Nagel's indignant, being indignant about her, you know, yeah, she has all these things that, you know, she has a better position in life, whether she's aware of it or not. And that um, after um, Donnelly is forced to strangle his friend to death to, to rescue her from the, the gangsters, uh, he finally sees, he thinks, what Nagel was talking about after he finds out that she, you know, grasped him up somewhat, you know, by, you know, telling the police he was involved. And to me, at that point, it becomes something like the end of Seven Samurai, this idea that the heroic defenders are always the one to get screwed and the villagers are just going to continue with their lives as if nothing happened. And it's not, it, it's an injustice, but it's not something that's intentional. It's just the way that things are set up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, she, you know, she starts the book in this kind of trap of this kind of very, you know, uh, dull, conventional, uh, suburban, married family life, you know, where she is not really living at all. Yeah. And then this, you know, she, this other trap occurs, which is this criminal trap, this trap of murder, this trap of, you know, that could ruin her life, you know, and then by the end of the book, you know, it's all resolved, but she still hasn't moved on from the original trap that she was in and that's the thing to me you know gives it this kind of noirish kind of quality because it's it's like there's there's resolution at the end on one level you know in terms of you know what happens to her and what happens regarding the crime but i'm not sure that there's any sense that she's out of the initial trap that 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 she was in which is you know that 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 anything has, has has really changed for her in regards to you know, maybe her relationship with her children or her life or, you know. But she's not unhappy in it. It's, I don't think it's portrayed. I disagree that it's portrayed as a trap at all. She seems perfectly content in that life. She's never tempted by anything. It's not like she gets into this underworld and is drawn in in any way. She's, if anything, what happened, the story is she's constantly drawn out of her domestic situation in a way that irritates her. You know what I mean? That she would like to go back to just her life being normal. She doesn't get, she doesn't want to have steaks in a private dining room. She doesn't want to go shopping in New York. She doesn't even care about her jewelry. You don't get the sense that giving up her jewelry matters to her, you know, that really what she wants to do is, is go home and not have ham sandwiches because ham is under ration, you know, that, that yeah, that's must, what she wants. Almost even that there is something tragic about that, that like her biggest aspiration really is to be Miss Lloyd or, you know, among like, you know, the higher class. It'd be tragic if it were me, but I think that's, I think that's reader projection at that point. I'm not sure that's a thematic idea of the book. I I think there's, there's a point where she says that she doesn't know what she wants. And I think that, I think that's my key thing is that she doesn't, she hasn't lived to the point where, 
you know, she has been kind of caught in amber since she was like 17. She doesn't really have mm-hmm. purpose. You know, that's the thing is that she, she doesn't really have purpose. And, and when you look at her life and think, well, what's, you know, B's 17, you know, David's 15, over the next five years, they're going to be off to college. And then what's, what's her life like? You know, and I think yeah. on her terms, yes, she could be happy and satisfied just, just, pooping around the house with with Sybil doing all the work and you know but she'll be hitting father's whiskey a little more yeah yeah but but there's no purpose to her life and I think that's something that she has kind of within the book kind of got this growing awareness of is again when she goes back to talking of herself as you know I'm I'm just a doll it's like I'm just this shell I don't have a a thing inside me and I think that's I feel unreal yeah Yeah, I don't feel real I think she lacks that sense of personhood and I'm not sure whether by the end of the book we feel that she's 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 gained that. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm, no, I know exactly what you mean. I was thinking in terms of uh, what does she desire, but I think you're absolutely right that it's a portrait of somebody who has no coherent desire for themselves because they have been in a role, uh, which is unquestionably in, in the uh, in the writing of it, which is which is interesting to think about. But she also doesn't necessarily. Um, when she says she feels unreal, it never reads like existentially plaintive in the way that that uh, a lot of books, like, again, I don't know why I'm so caught up on James and Kane, but Postman Always Rings Twice is about a really fucking unhappy housewife mm-hmm. who, like, every single page of it is unhappy, you know? And, uh, or, or Double Indemnity that you have in classic noir stories, these women who want out you know what I mean? Who want out of their domestic situation. And that's not what this is, which is what makes it feel original to me, which was what makes it striking to me, is that it's not the story of uh, somebody who's decided they want out of their life by any means necessary. It's not even, you know, the inverse of that is something like out of the past, where you have a criminal who's just wanted out of the darkness, you know, before and wants the regular life. It's not even, it's not even that either. Well, early I think the these book, are good things about it. I want to be clear. Early in the <laughs> book, what's interesting Lucy, uh, about the story, about the book. Well, early in the book, Lucy is described as um, excelling in anything, never a leader in anything. So she liked everyone and was interested in no one. And she's described as having no coquetry, right? And her husband had even told her, you're the hardest girl in the world to make love to. You're so blame it friendly. And I guess if you look at those three descriptions of her, by the end, you know, she has taken the lead on several things she has become interested in the world outside of her home and she's gotten into this kind of interesting relationship with this uh, she's engaged in coquetry if you ask nagel nagel claim would say that was coquetry par excellence i mean there is can't ask nagel he's dead (laughs) (laughs) there there is a great scene actually after you know uh donnelly kills nagel which is quite a gruesome death, actually, like right in front of her. He like throttles the life out of him. Yeah, and it's obviously something... Throttles him so hard he breaks his own arm somehow? (laughs) From choking choking someone so hard you break your own arm. Yeah, and how he describes it later is like, you know, Nagel had no idea that was coming, you know? Yeah. That's creepy. (laughs) But she, there's a great great bit where he he's kind of saying oh you know I, I i can't get out of this and she just says snap out of it don't be so spineless stick up for you you know suddenly she has all this kind of fire inside her and there's a, the, the, there's that ties in with a bit earlier where she talks about how 
I think she's referring to Donnelly, where she says, you know, Donnelly's like, you know, like Tom and like David, you know, they're, they're soft, they're not as, they're not as strong as me. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. she has an awareness that she has some kind of uh, strength that other people don't have. And, you know, and, and that actually in this situation, when, <laughs> when it comes to hiding bodies of, of you know, <laughs> these reputable men, she is on it. Do you know I mean that's a talent that that she has, and it is really kind of instinctive. No, you know, let's let's move that body out of here. Do you know what I mean? Well, she, it's her Sarah yeah, Connor moment from the end of the Terminator, where she's grabbing yeah. Reese and going, "Move it, Mister!" You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's it reminds me of um. It's like, what if you made your femme fatale friendly? You know, like if your book's femme fatale, if you, this is from Donnelly and Nagel's point of view, she's the femme fatale in the story. And what if she was friendly, but it also reminds me of Waltz Under Darkness, Waltz Under Darkness, which we talked about uh, last month, which is the, you know, if it's when you commit a murder, it's like buying a hat, you know, I buy a hat and then I go home and I don't think all day, I bought a hat, I bought a hat, I bought a hat. Do you understand? It's that same mindset of like, she's also not thinking about the hat she bought ever in this story you know like it's a it's a funny way where she's like oh yeah we threw that body away in the trunk like i wonder what happened to that and then she's on to the next thing in some ways you know it's a, it's a what's funny interesting though is, is is that about midway through the book she she stops to read a mystery story do you remember this <laughs> yes that her dad recommended right yeah and says that she doesn't really like mystery stories because uh, nobody ever seems to feel feel sorry about the person being murdered yeah no and and there's no, never any pity for them and then she goes yeah but how how much pity did i feel for ted darby yeah <laughs> again she has this kind of like sort of moment of kind of like self-awareness <laughs> yeah oh, yeah actually you know i i i you know i am involved in the crime and i, I don't feel any sympathy for that guy whatsoever. <laughs> he's just a body and that's it she doesn't even seem to feel sympathy for nagel or even donnelly you know you don't get a sense of her going like oh my God, what have I done with Donnelly? You know, the one person that she expresses a lot of sympathy for, which is again, the like scream, stop doing dumb stuff, is the guy who's been wrongfully uh, arrested for Ted Darby's murder. And she's yeah. like, well, it'd be a sin to keep him in there. And Donnelly's being like, believe me, it does not matter. That guy sucks. He's a rat. You got to let him go. They got him with the rat writ. Move on, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. you talked about Miami Murray? he's so very criminal he's very criminal but uh but she's like nah that would be a sin so i gotta let him out and it's not even necessarily sympathy she seems to feel for him it's like oh that's a sin she doesn't feel any sympathy for donnelly taking all of the heat at the end it doesn't seem like she doesn't have that same breakdown of well for the same reason i had to get uh, Miami Murray out of jail. I gotta get Donnelly out of jail. That's, you that's know? because Donnelly killed Nagel. If, yes. he, if he'd just taken the rap for Derby, he yes. would have got him off. But because he killed Nagel, even though he was defending her doing it, uh, yeah, well, he's, he's got to pay the price. Right. Well, he took yeah. away that that choice for her. Right. So yeah, she but he come takes forward. away. Yeah, yeah, but also he's taking the rap for Ted Darby too. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. taking that and she's no longer struck by conscience in any way. Uh, it's a fascinating character. It's an interesting character. It reminds me of a lot of people I know that sort of float along through life in a certain way that feels dangerous to be around. To me, a lot of my reaction to that character is like, you don't want people like Lucia in your life. 
You know, if you're Sybil, you don't want a boss like that. If you're Donnelly, you don't want a uh, mother of your blackmailing victim like that. If, uh, you know, if you're, if you're B, you probably don't want a mother like that, you know, although that seems a little uh, out of my uh, range of experience to judge one way or the other. Uh, it, it is purely personal subjective reaction is like, those are the people that are really dangerous in life that sort of float along obliviously feeling like the darkness won't touch them in a meaningful way. Those people are really, capable of anything and not going to think of you. You know, I think, I, I Armors think and seven really sorry, yes. if, if you read, I'd recommend reading the innocent uh, Mrs. Duff as, as another kind of holding. I got book. it. I got it in the second, the back half of this copy I got. Yeah. I'm going to start on it next. That, that's really good. And I, I think she's really good on, you know, on, on books where you stick with a single character and you get an insight into what's going on. Yeah. You know, and, and with the innocent Mrs. Duff, you, you're with this guy and, you know, he, he is much less of a sympathetic character than, than, than Lucia is. But, but it's, you know, which is why I think that, that this question of intent and what Holding's trying to do with the character is really, is really interesting because I think she's really good at, at you know, drawing these, these characters who don't necessarily have this kind of uh, self-awareness and, and kind of get themselves yeah. into you know, the innocent Mrs. Duff is great about people who get themselves into in, into horrible situations through just doing things that you just think you can see yeah. from the outside what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Highsmith too, because reading, rereading Little Tales of Misogyny, those are so mean-spirited, so incredibly mean-spirited, <laughs> these stories. And their ironies are so sharp and pointed that you're never um, confused about uh, how... Uh, what a cruelty she wants to inflict on the idea of the ways in which people uh, uh, create their own problems. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That's the running theme of that is like, these people are creating their own problems. Their personality types are creating their problems. Their relationship to the world are creating their problems. They're the source of their own miseries, right? And they're, and they're definitely the source of the miseries of people around them who have them inflicted on them. And they're so super sharp. And the ironies are so super sharp in them too. There's never any confusion. With the blank wall, I definitely do have a reaction of, I'd love to sit down and talk with her about this character. You know, I feel like I could do with another hundred pages of this book. That's not plot. That's just spending time with her. You know, that that's like the car ride when they have the trunk to just go like into Joycey in detail of what's happening in her head in that 15 minutes. You know, I'm, I'm up for that with this book in a good way. I think, you know, I think that it's, uh, um, but I don't think that its ironies are drawn razor sharp. I think that it's a much, it's a book that's sort of hazy in a good way though. You know, yeah, yeah. I, again, that's like, uh, that it's, you get lost in the fog with her. You're sort of the fog of her mind descends on your own mind as you read it. And again, it's one of those things that I think, that I, I think I said at the start, I think is missing from both the film versions is, is, is that she is much more of a sympathetic character and much more of a certain character you know you don't have this kind of fogginess around her i think you yeah. know and i mean the the deep end is is interesting in that they change b to Bo, so it becomes her son who is uh in a yes. relationship with what do they change his name to darby reese so again sounds like a roman uh, <laughs> played by josh lucas but but in you know in that story you you get more of a sense that this is a story about 
you know, a woman, you know, reconciling with her, with her son. Do you know what I mean? That, that, yeah. that sense that you don't really get in the blank wall, that, that, you know, mother and daughter kind of come together by the end, you do definitely get, you know, in the deep end. It ends more like that's the focus of, of the yeah. story. But it's also interesting how slyly, by the end, she and B are like working together. You know what I mean? Like B has become sort of, uh, uh, is feeding the police the same lies to help her mother. You know what yeah. I mean? That it's fascinating how slyly it's uh, the ideas put forth that B is now an agent working on her mother's behalf uh, without a big scene of reconciliation or even a discussion about it. That B's perspective uh, on everything has sort of shifted and now she's working on her mother's behalf. Excellent, guys. Well, anything else you want to say about the blank wall before we move into our dessert picks? I'm I'm ready to move on. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna change my dessert pick based on our <laughs> conversation. Uh, I was gonna pick uh, Selki Neta Plu, the Boilo Narsajek book, uh, She Who Was No More, that got turned into uh, Le Diabolique, which is about uh, you know a body. Uh, that is submerged and won't stay submerged. Uh, the the original book, the the genders are switched around and the relationships are switched around in it. Uh, it has an ending that's even still very surprising, uh, even in compared to the famously surprising ending of Lady Diabolique, uh, which is a famous you know don't be a devil and spoil this title card at the end. You know this the book even goes one step further and sort of surprise, and that's the same. Uh, sort of idea of um, a woman who is uh, and uh, and her her uh, the man she's having an affair with have committed a murder and getting in over your head uh, very quickly uh, that I thought was an interesting comparison because again it is a little their book is a little more uh, nasty it's a little more uh, aware of the criminal world I think it's a little psychologically. Uh, uh, sharper than this, and it's an interesting person. But I'm going to change my pick to Lucretia Martel's A Headless Woman, which yeah. is about a woman who is not sure whether she's run a child over or not, and is trying to go through and live her sort of domestic day-to-day uh, -day life um, with this idea that, did I run that poor kid over or not in the back of her head was a dog that I ran over what actually happened there and how it sort of seeps into this domestic world that she's trying to keep together. And I'm going to play an onion writer right now. Yeah. Okay. It's a dog. You see, it's a dog. There's no way of cutie. <laughs> what are you dumb? Uh, yeah. That was one of the worst reviews I've ever read. Oh. Um, there's an AV club review that insists that, the movie, which has its theme of ambiguity, is not ambiguous. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that that's a very similar kind of story to this, which I don't think I realized before beginning this conversation. And it's got a great performance by Maria Neto, one of my favorite performances. But it's it's about a woman who uh, crime or is it, yeah, I guess it would be crime, sort of chaos descends on a domestic stasis in some way, and that the definitions that she's lived within for herself start to become blurred, and reality sort of starts to come apart around her in this context. 
Excellent. That's uh, cool that you changed it up, and that's uh, one of the best <laughs> films of the last 20 years, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to change mine to Blazing Saddles, the Mel Brooks film. Uh, no, I'm sticking what? with mine. Sticking with mine. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin uh, by Lionel Shriver, who, don't be fooled, is a female writer. Changed her name from Lionel to Margaret. Um, mainly the connection here, and obviously there's the uh, obvious connection that the, both of these books were turned into movies starring Tilda Swinton. But um, while this, of course, is not a fully... Uh, a pistolary novel. It uh, does have scenes where uh, Lucy is writing to her husband in the war and trying to start these letters and mm-hmm. create this dialogue about, and she's unable to say anything about, you know, what exactly the struggles she's going through are to him. Um, same as we need to talk about Kevin, where it's uh, presented as letters written by the female lead character, Eva, to her husband, Franklin. Um, one of the more striking scenes in uh, the blank wall is when Lucy is thinking back to when her children were four or five years old and she eavesdropped on them having a conversation with each other and realized, Oh, these are people now. They're not little children that I need to raise. They are communicating with each other and they are their own people. <laughs> and they've, uh, a great and I didn't, moment. and she wasn't ready for that moment where they would be their own actual living human beings who would kind of go off into the world and not need her. And we need to talk about Kevin has an interesting theme of, how much a parent is responsible for a person for, for a child and how much it's easy to say, what am I supposed to do? Cause from the beginning, the idea is that this child that she's had, this son, Kevin is completely evil, basically a little Damien Omen kid and is obviously going to go on to do something terrible. How am I supposed to work with that? How can I parent that evil out of him? And she seems completely oblivious to the idea that her parenting has anything to do with this child's wickedness. Um, and it's funny because in both this and mother, which was my uh, parentif, it's, it's a situation where the child is definitely guilty of murdering somebody. There uh, were so, several somebodies in this case, uh, as opposed to blank wall where, you know, it's completely ambiguous whether or not B was actually involved in the death of Ted Darby whatsoever, but they all have sort of a similar kind of unifying theme of, how did how do I deal with these kids? You know, like how do I you know step <laughs> forward uh, as a parent, and what are my responsibilities, and what of what of this is a reflection of me? You know, like what of like my kids' rottenness is something that came from me that they actually got from me. And it's funny too that we brought up Robin Hood earlier because um, uh, in the book and the movie, you know, she gives him a, a book of Robin Hood, and that's when he first starts to become interested. Uh, in something in archery, which ultimately, you know, plays into like the most horrible thing that he does. So even things that are positive, you know, that are positive parenting end up being something that is ultimately damning. So that is my choice. Excellent. Well, I, I mean, uh, going on the, the, the theme of, um, terrible children, uh, my choice is Douglas Sirk's There's Always Tomorrow from, which is it's kind of a sort of lesser heralded Douglas Sirk film because it's in black and white and it's it's not got the same kind of uh, I don't know glow as those kind of big kind of color movies. But I but I saw this film for the first time I think last year and loved it. I watched it again recently. It uh, stars Fred McMurray as this guy called uh, Cliff Groves, who is essentially this suburban dad and you know and the reason one of the reasons why i thought it'd be a good pairing with the blank wall is because it's almost like the you know the the 
the, the other side of it. He's his dad who's just trapped in this suburban suburban life where he's got this wife, Joan Bennett, who was also in The Reckless Moment, uh, and these two kids, teenage kids, who essentially take him for granted. He's, you know, he just brings the money in, he pays the phone bill, he, you know, they, and there's a fantastic scene at the beginning where it's his wife's birthday and he's come home, you know, he's bought tickets for them both to go to the theatre that evening and he's not been able to get through to, to phone her to tell her that that's, that that's what he wants to do because the kids have been tying up the phone line with their own social lives, you know, and then he gets home and says, you know, I've done this thing for you. I want to take you out. And she says, Oh, I can't, I've got to go go out with one of the kids to her ballet performance. And he ends up just alone <laughs> in the house. And then uh, Barbara Stanwyck, who is somebody that he knew sort of 20 years earlier, who he, who he worked with, turns up on his doorstep and you know, you you gradually kind of realise that she was at that time in love with him and still is, you know, which he is kind of at first oblivious of until, you know, he slowly, you know, falls in love with her too. And it's, it's but the whole film is about this kind of, uh, you know, this guy trapped in this, in, in this, you know, suburban kind of American dream of like, you know, good job, fam, wife, family, kids, you know, and, and wants something else out of it and cannot, tantalisingly it's presented to him and he cannot get it. I mean, there's obviously a frisson there because you've got Stanwyck and Fred McMurray like 12 years after Dublin Indemnity kind of coming yeah. back on, on the screen together and, and, and kind of having this kind of hint of hint of an affair. But but again, it's another film where the kids are, are absolute dicks to, to their parents. You know, the, yeah. the start. And, it, and it follows. It says the film he did right after All That Heaven Allows, which is one of the great all-time man yeah. fuck those kids movies yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and the kids in this are, are equally as bad you know, yes they, they see him kind of having having fun with this woman who who at the beginning he he has absolutely you know he introduces to his wife he's, he, he doesn't hide that he's met her he doesn't hide that he, yeah you know, i met this woman you know i've spent some time with her i'd like to bring her over for dinner you know he's above board about everything but yeah. his son teenage son and daughter you know, think that he's he's you know having an affair and you know warn her off and you know behave abominably to him and and again it's it's another film that is 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 about kind of sacrifice I guess you know what is he willing to kind of sacrifice and it's got it's kind of the end scene is really heartbreaking where he's uh, you know I don't want to spoil it but you know it, you know just the 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 sense of, of, of this man trapped in, in this life, which again, from, from the outside, you know, is this comfortable sort of, you know, upper middle class kind of suburban wealthy life. You know, they don't want for yeah. They can afford it. You know, he can afford to go to the desert for a weekend and hang out and, you know, they can afford, whole, you know, pony riding lessons and everything. You know, he runs a toy factory, you know, on the surface, he's got everything that, 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 that you could want, but he's, again, he's just, he's trapped in this life where there's, there's, you know, he's just taken for granted and there's, you know, there's nothing for him. Yeah. That is, a, that is a great choice. It is, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's still, uh, I think one of the reasons it gets overlooked is by, I'm, I'll, God, I don't even need to look up. I'm 99% sure Russell Meddy shot it, but Russell Meddy didn't work in black and white a lot. And uh, so I think that like, that always to me feels like something to do with it. Like the tarnished angels look so great. Like that's the black and white Cirque, you know what I mean? Or you want technicolor Cirque, you know what I mean? Uh, like the All That Heaven Allows, you know, Magnificent Obsession and all of that. 
But very interesting movie. Very interesting movie. Great selection. Steven, thank you so much for coming back on. We always love having you on the show. Uh, Thanks for bringing this author to to our uh, pop cultural consciousness. I'm curious to track down Virgin Huntress at some point and read some more of her work. Um, Everybody, next month we're going to be, it's going to be October. So, of course, we're going to do a horror-themed book. Uh, We've invited Lily Library's uh, Rebecca Bauman on the show. And uh, we're going to be talking about two Fritz Lieber books, uh, Conjure Wife and Our Lady of Darkness, which is kind of a funny coincidence because I picked up as my aperitif last time we had Stephen on the show. Uh, and now we're going to be going uh, further into that. So Rebecca Ballman, um, she's going to be a terrific guest and we're excited about that. Uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you again, Stephen, for having you on the show. It's always a lot of fun and always delving into books that I'm genuinely not familiar with at all. So that's always great for me. Very welcome. It's, it's always fun to do this, and I'd love to come back. Anytime. We got to plan the next one, right? Ooh. Definitely. Definitely.